whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him this is good heavens a podcast exploring the wonders of god's heavenly creation One minute we're eating pizza, then five minutes later we've helped to discover a supernova. In 2014, I wrote a small article about this pizza party turned unexpected supernova discovery. Here's a little excerpt from the article. Quote, on the night of January 20th, 2014, a Monday night, a small group of astronomy students were huddled about as the weather began to get a bit foggy over the glowing city lights of London town. Not exactly the ideal location for observing the heavens in great detail. They ordered the standard fare of collegiate life, pizza, and settled in for what promised to be a rather ordinary evening. Before the night sky had been completely immersed in cloud cover, however, the group decided to spend some time using some features on one of their telescopes." And so, just before old London fog obscured their view of the heavens for the night, the instructor of the group decided to point the telescope at a galaxy known as Messier 82, not far from the bucket of the Big Dipper. That's when they noticed a star that should not have been there. They checked and double-checked, and sure enough, they had discovered a supernova. The closest one to our galaxy since the sudden appearance of supernova 1987A in the Large Magellanic Cloud. As one of the students in London said of their discovery, quote, The chances of finding anything new in the sky are astronomical, but this was particularly astonishing as it was one of the first images we had taken with this telescope. End quote. Something similar happened in 1987 in the heavens above the Chilean desert of Atacama. Astronomer Ian Shelton was just busily engaged at the Las Campanas Observatory, taking images of the large Magellanic Cloud, and spied an unusually bright object, brighter than anything he had ever seen in the LMC before. A blue supergiant star, formerly known as Sandulik 69202, burst into arguably one of the most beauteous and quiotic arrangements of light ever seen in a supernova. Now formerly known as SN1987A, this supernova has been imaged countless times by amateur and professional astronomers alike, including iconic portraits taken by the Hubble, Chandra, and Spitzer Space Telescopes. It's likely most of us will never catch a glimpse of a supernova, but there is some encouragement to take from these remarkable discoveries. 
Neither the students in London nor Mr. Shelton thought they'd be making historic discoveries with their telescopes on those fateful evenings. They were going about their normal routines when suddenly, unexpectedly, we might say they were given a surprise glimpse of God's glory. After all, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring his handiwork. God is indeed faithful to us. In our daily routines of busyness, being distracted, maybe feeling a bit overwhelmed by our circumstances, or maybe feeling a bit listless or faithless, or maybe we are in dire need of a little divine encouragement, take heart, God sees you. He knows your frame, that you are but dust. He numbers the stars, calling them all by name. Your way is not hidden from him, and he knows right where and when to give you the needed encouragement and strength to persevere. You might not be visited by a supernova during family pizza night, but God may indeed break in at any time and answer a prayer you've been praying for a while, meet a specific need, send along an encouraging note through someone, or do a much-needed miracle. In presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, in persevering, in doing the little daily things, God can and does break in and remind us He knows us, He cares, and He loves us. So be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart. Your supernova is on its way, whatever that may be. The bright and morning star knows right where you are and just what you need and knows exactly when to provide it. The one who created the stars knows you by name. The hairs of your head are all numbered. So come along with Wayne and me and let the wonders of supernovae be an encouragement to you today. A reminder that if God has given us his only begotten son who loves us and gave himself for us, that he will also freely give you everything you need to do his will for his glory. As we start part two, we chat a bit about the wonders of Supernova 1987A and consider how we think it all points to God's glory in Christ Jesus. Here's Wayne. Yes, so and, uh, that star was uh, 168,000 light years away from us in the large Magellanic cloud. I've always thought this was a this is something with an odd name, but this is a small galaxy that orbits our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, this was a blue star in the large Magellanic cloud. Um, scientists um, detected neutrinos coming from this some period of hours before the actual explosion happened. So the star compresses. And while that compression happens, neutrinos are given off. And and these are kind of hard to detect because neutrinos go right through normal matter and they hardly ever interact with matter at all. But anyway, this happens in a supernova and then the star blows up. So you get the, the neutrinos when there's this initial compression and then it explodes and then it gets really bright. And then after the explosion... There's this shock wave that goes out from this star, from this object. And so by the time you get to a few months later, uh, then after the event, we could see uh, these rings of uh, bright gas. So hot gas would 
would go off of this in rings uh, that would give off light after some months after the event from the shock waves. So the shock waves of supernovas do a lot, and that's very interesting and becomes very um, beautiful sometimes for pictures. Yeah, and that the <laughs> supernova 1987A, uh, the reason it's A is because it was the first one in 1987 that we saw, uh, beautiful, stellar, wonderful pictures, they just fantastic. They took pictures. You can see this online, and I'll try, if I can remember, I'll try to link this in the description notes. Um, the, the, the pictures of the supernova, the picture of the supernova was taken by Hubble, was taken by the Chandra X-ray, and uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope Infrared. So there's X-ray, infrared, and uh, visible light, all with Hubble. They have the X-ray, invisible, and and um, and um, infrared. Yeah, and they like to take these multiple parts of the spectrum and combine them with the yeah, one image. Yeah, and it, it was it was fantastic. And I've used this analogy of this supernova, uh, the death of this star. I've used this in a presentation once. I don't know if it went over well or not. But uh, so you have the Hubble visible light image, which is distinctly different from the Chandra X-ray image, which I think is a ring of beautiful blue. And then you have the, I think it's Spitzer, you have the infrared, which is a kind of an orangish uh, look. And then you have the combination of all of these light waves put together in the spectacular photograph uh, that combines all the light waves. And it's just this beautiful image. And I liken it to the Gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you have John. So you have, you know, however you want to catalog the, the invisible light you could say matthew's gospel is is infrared and then you could say mark's gospel is is visible light and then you could say luke's gospel is x-ray <laughs> but different perspectives different different uh, light waves different perspectives of the life and death and resurrection of jesus and then you get to the composite which is john which is just so different <laughs> yeah i like that analogy <laughs> and all That's the good, other <laughs> man, I like yeah but and then John is so different than the other three, right? This composite yeah. that has so many other rich details that the other, the, the synoptics don't have. But uh, but I think you know it's it, it's an analogous aspect to the glory of God. Uh, I think that these wonderful things that that there's light, you know, that we can't see. That thanks to our modern technologies, we we can see. Uh, and astronomers like uh, Dr. Kokomore, who we feature in our book a little bit, and uh, who I met. Dr. Kokomore works on these things at the, the Space Telescope Science Institute, imaging uh, these invisible light waves, putting them all together in a photograph that would look, the, the, what the light would look like if we could see it all with our visible eyes. And uh, he, he, he takes fantastically painstaking care in, in combining these images and creating these, these wonderful things that you see in these images. So I will, uh, I will uh, link uh, the images of uh, SN Supernova 1987A in our notes so you can check those out for yourself. And then um, the, the, this is also so fascinating to me, which makes me think, hey, we're, we're due for a supernovae. We're due for a supernova in our galaxy because... Uh, the last one, the last two that happened in the Milky Way were observed by Johannes Kepler and uh, Tycho Brahe. So we have Tycho's star in 1572, and we have Kepler's star in 1604. And yes. So, so that's Kepler's Supernova too. 1604, SN1604. That appeared in the constellation of Ophiuchus, the serpent handler. And um, I know that, uh, I think, I don't know if you have it in the book, but I know I've used this quote many times. 
Kepler did, you know, for, for princes and, and nobles, Kepler would do um, astronomical or astrological predictions for, for certain people for, for money. Right. He, he, yeah. would do, he didn't believe in them necessarily, but, uh, you know, he did it as, as a source of income. But when people started asking Kepler, what does this new star mean? And uh, Kepler thought about it, and I, you've said this before, and I know we've talked about it. Kepler had said, uh, well, I think it is best that uh, a man examine his sins and repent. <laughs> yes, that's you know, pretty safe I, advice. Yeah, it's good it? advice. Yeah. It's good advice. Uh, and I don't mean to laugh. It's not funny. It's true. Yes. But, but, but he's, he's, he's right, you know, when we examine the glory of God, that, that that should lead us, whether it's a supernova or just the beauty of a night sky, um, that the glory of God, his kindness and mercy should lead us to turning to him. Examine our ways. Examine right. our ways. And, Absolutely and, right. And, and, and turn to him, um, turn from sin. Of course, it's constantly turning from t- to him because just like a planet, we're constantly turning away from God and we constantly need to turn back to God. So repentance isn't just a, a kind of a one-time deal you did at a summer camp. It's uh, it's it's a constant turning to God, reading the scriptures, um, d- devoting yourself to to Jesus and 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 dying to self and all of that. That is uh, it's good advice from Kepler. I have concluded a few podcasts with that advice. <laughs> yes, and uh, I conclude <laughs> I conclude our book, the story of the cosmos, with that very uh, exhortation from Matthew: um, you know, "The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Repent." You know, that's the key is is that uh, God has given us this space of grace to be able to see and recognize his glory in creation so that we 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 turn to him um, by faith. So um, let's give our listeners a little bit more detail about the other kinds of supernova that are out there, both uh, what we already know about and the new things that you discovered. Yes, so uh, I wanted to talk about the type 1b and 1c supernovas a little bit. And uh, to to understand this, you got to know a little bit about stars. So when a star runs out of hydrogen, you remember hydrogen is number one on the periodic table. Yeah, that's the prime element. And then uh, number two is helium. So helium is two hydrogens fused together. And if if a star starts to run out of hydrogen, it starts to fuse helium together into the next element and that sort of there's a kind of predictable chain of of elements that go up the periodic table you might say um in number so in a star as a star starts burning the bigger and bigger elements it ends up with layers of different elements and the 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 biggest element that a star can form is iron it never goes bigger beyond iron in a inside a star. Okay. So if if it's forming iron, it would be a big star and it would be very hot and very dense. But anyway, iron would be kind of close to the center, and then you can have other elements that uh, are in other layers. So uh, outside of uh, outside of iron, then you may have a layer that's silicon and magnesium. You could have a layer. You'd have a layer of neon, and you could have a layer of oxygen, and then a layer of carbon, and then you could have a layer that's helium. Mm. So, in a type one A, I'm sorry, type one B supernova, the hydrogen layer is gone. 
And so the outer layer of the star is helium. Okay. In a type 1c supernova, both hydrogen and helium are gone. Mm. They've both been used up. And so in a type 1c, it gets to where the star's outer layer is carbon. Gotcha. And this is in the process, as we said earlier, the hydrogen is being used up in the layers are getting burned and turned into other materials. Yes. So uh, these, it takes higher and higher temperatures and pressures to form these higher elements. Mm. As it goes up from helium to carbon to oxygen to neon and so on, it has to be hotter, hotter and hotter. And so, as you might expect, it makes the explosion a little bigger when it blows up as it compresses. And that's the 1B and 1C. So it's it's also like the type 2 in that the, the core of the star eventually compresses very highly and very, very dense, and then it explodes. Yeah, so in type 1s and type 2s, you have core deterioration. Um, you have a type 1A, which involves white dwarves, um, but uh, through type 1B and through type 2N, uh, you have core collapses where you're, the core cannot support the crushing outer shell weight, and there's a, a great deal of of crushing of atoms that go on, and when you crush an atom, you get neutrinos, and so you can kind of detect if a supernova might happen by a burst of neutrinos coming at us. Um, yeah, and uh, there's some more exotic things that happen with, some, with collisions. Sometimes when a supernova happens, it it's kind of at a surprising time, not expected because there's a collision. Yeah. Uh, so, so for example, you can have something like a neutron star, and the other star might be a normal star, or it might be a white dwarf. Mm-hmm. So, if one of them is a neutron star, that makes it a little more interesting when they collide. Yes, because uh, it, it can make even more energy. Because it's two really dense objects, and it makes uh, other kinds of radiation come off of this event. Mm. So it it gets brighter like a supernova would, but there's more going on with the radioactivity and the radiation coming off. Yeah, and and they call this. There's a new term for this. It's called kilonova or macronova. <laughs> <laughs> and then the kilo a kilonova, uh, what they think is that the there's a lot of elements that form from this. So remember I said the high the highest element on the periodic table that can form inside a star is iron, but when in these kilonovas they believe there's a lot of other higher higher uh, atomic number elements on the periodic table above iron. Okay. that can f- form from these events. So it's just a super high energy event. I wanted to yeah. uh speaking of of uh the Nova, we mentioned earlier that the, the Crab Nebula, which is the leftover remnant of the guest star that the Chinese records describe in 1054, um, you, you, you'd mentioned a neutron star where the core is mostly neutrons. And uh, the, at the center of this uh, cloud, the, the Crab Nebula, is a neutron star that was discovered and it rotates, spins on its axis 30 times a second. It's spinning rapidly, like uh, the common analogy people use is an Olympic ice skater when they pull their arms in as they're spinning. They pull their arms in, and, and the closer their arms are to the body, the faster the skater goes. And um, 
the magnetic field of this neutron star is 10 to the 12th times more powerful than the magnetic field of the Earth. But uh, this, it's interesting because as the north and south pole of this neutron star spins around, let's just say that, for example, um, this, this star's north pole was aimed at us, okay, and, and it was spinning. As the North Pole spins around, we could hear the signal. It beep, beep, as we are in the beam of this North Pole of the spinning star. And this is what they call a radio pulsar. We can hear the signal. It beep, Mm -hmm. beep, beep. And these radio pulsars were first discovered uh, by an astronomy student, Joyce Lynn Bell, in 1967. And uh, the rotation period she discovered was 1.33 seconds. And unfortunately, though, her, her thesis advisor, Anthony, uh, Anthony Hewish, I believe his name was, he won the Nobel Prize in physics for the discovery of radio pulsars. But uh, Jocelyn, Jocelyn did not. She did not get to share in the prize. Um, but that, that's a pulsar. That's where the, the, the neutron star is spinning and we can pick up its signal like a radio beep. Um, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yes. Uh, there's one other thing I'd like to bring up. And about the science, there's a really recently discovered thing that's a mystery about our own galaxy, and it has to do with supernovas. Okay. <clears throat> Scientists over the years have found a really good way to detect supernovas, mm-hmm. which is to look for uh, light emissions from uh, radioactive aluminum-26. Aluminum-26 so, uh, is a really uh, heavy aluminum, right? <laughs> yes, it's got extra neutrons, and it gives off uh, radioactivity uh, particles, ionized particles, and decays, and has a half-life of something like 400 and some thousand years, I think it is. But uh, So it's not a real long-lived isotope. And anyway, there's certain uh, light the emission lines that it gives off, when supernovas happen. And so there was a study by the European Space Agency where they were looking for aluminum-26 emissions uh, uh, around our galaxy. And, okay, there's there's something... Uh, uh, planetary scientists often talk about this uh, called the scale height. And they usually refer to this when they're trying to measure... Uh, an atmosphere from a planet, like how fast uh, does a, does the gases fade away into space? Uh, it, but the, it's a measure by distance, so it's called the scale height. If you if you have a uh, a smaller object, like say you had Titan, which is Saturn's moon, right? It's small. It's a moon. It, it would it would have a smaller scale height, which means that the gases would fade away quicker into space. But on Earth, Earth is heavier; it's got more mass, so the gases would have would would it would take farther out for the gases to fade away. So it would have a higher scale height. So, so but this time they're looking at it for our galaxy. So our galaxy is a spiral. Uh, has spiral arms, right? And the disc going around the center and they're rotating around the center of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. So above and below the disc, 
there's lots of uh, aluminum 26 and it goes out to a scale height of 800 when they expected it to be more like about 50. So the 50 means that they expected it come from the galaxy. So when supernovas happen in the galaxy, the aluminum 26 would kind of drift out. Okay. And, and then, and it would, they, this, the measure of how it would drift out comes up with that number of 50 for the scale height. But what they observed was the scale height was 800. So it's going way out there. So there's a lot more of it than they expected. And then the other thing they found was that this aluminum 26 that's around the galaxy, it's moving faster than the galaxy. So they, if you looked at how fast the stars are spinning around the center of the galaxy, uh, the aluminum 26 part of it is moving about 100 or two, to 200 kilometers per second faster then the rest of the galaxy is spinning. Gotcha, gotcha. So that's a uh... so so. It, where's it? Where's all this aluminum twenty six coming from? Yeah, and and how come it's moving? They're spinning faster than the galaxy. That's amazing. So that's a that's a mystery. There's a lot of unknowns about supernovae, and uh, despite all the stuff that we do know, um, as Donald Rumsfeld said, there are known unknowns. <laughs> and there are unknown unknowns. unknowns. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. So uh, these researchers were suggesting it, maybe the the aluminum twenty six is really coming from outside our galaxy. Yeah, it could. So there's when we have better data and more things that we can determine or measure, that always brings up new mysteries. Yeah, and uh, uh, I I think it it brings us right back to the ancient questions that God asks Job in the 38th chapter. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? And this one. Can you explain the aluminum 26 around the galaxy? <laughs> we could throw that one in there. <laughs> Verse 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth. And, uh, you know, in verse 35, he asked Job, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. So <laughs> God commands the morning. He, he guides the, the constellations in their season. Only he knows thoroughly and exhaustively the ordinances of the heavens. And we are just with our tiny little telescopes and uh, tiny little technologies we are so impressed by. I mean, they're really cool, right? I'm not diminishing the, the extraordinary nature of our accomplishments. But um, as Anton Kokomor, Dr. Kokomor said when we did our Hubble Narnia presentation, um, he said it's not about the telescope. It's about, it's about what the telescope is, is capturing. And uh, I was in an uh, astronomy club for a while a couple years ago. And I didn't stay in it because as I, as I was there, I, I came to realize that, that I did a presentation and um, uh, when I, early on when I got there and I told them about our book and stuff and I put up a picture of the Big Dipper and I said, uh, you know, how many of you can name the, the stars in the Dipper? And the Dipper you can see all year long. It's a circumpolar constellation, uh, an asterism of Ursa Major. And uh, they could name the double star of Mike, of uh, Alcor and Mizar, 
but they didn't know any of the other stars in in the in the, so I went through kind of the star names and everything but as the as I would participate in meetings it, it really seemed to be more about telescopes and telescope technology and gear and cameras and lenses and and all that kind of stuff more than it was about um, the heavens themselves and um, and you know when you get into astrophotography it's all about the gear and the cameras and everything and yeah they have beautiful pictures and and certainly that you, you do all that because of the beauty of the universe but I think we can Wayne become more enamored with our technology uh, and rather than what our technology has has captured, you know, the beauty of the universe, and I think yes. I think it's important too. And I was just thinking about this yesterday. Um, you know, I've got a I've got a telescope. Um, it, it's not an astrophotography telescope. It's a ten inch Dobsonian. It's very simple. It's a big can of uh, a big light bucket with a mirror at the bottom of it. And um, what I love about it is that when I look at Andromeda. I mean, the stuff I see in the telescope, I can see these nebulae and everything that we're talking about. I can see the crab nebulae. I can see uh, the, 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 the Tycho's remnant, uh, supernova remnant. I can see Andromeda. But a lot of it just looks like a, a bluish luminous uh, fuzz, you know, like a, a, a luminous cotton or, or dryer lint or something that's kind of backlit. Um, and you think, oh, this doesn't look like the pictures. Well, no, but what I like about it is, number one, finding it with the telescope using just just finding it it's like a little treasure hunt and then when you see it it's just you and that object there's no mediation there's no filters there's no photography manipulation there's no uh you know it's just you your eye and this distant object and i to me it's like that's really cool that's the the wonder of it that you can find this distant object in the telescope and you go that's andromeda or that's that's uh, the supernova remnant. That's the Crab Nebula, or uh, that's the M13 uh, Hercules globular cluster. Um, you know, that's the wonder and the fun of astronomy. I think is is that naked eye encounter with these things, um, and I appreciate that. And I think we're we're losing that people, especially in in cities where we can't see stars. Uh, the dark sky areas are becoming less and less uh, visible to us. But if you've ever, you need to, if you ever have, uh, you need to take the chance and get out under a super dark sky. And it's, it's just a wonderful experience that I think, uh, you know, these deep sky objects are fascinating. And if you know somebody with a, a big telescope, it's definitely worth checking out. But uh, it's not about the telescopes. It's not about the cameras. It's about uh, the glory of God and capturing these images and, and being able to stand before them. It's like when you go to the uh, Muir Woods in, in San Francisco, outside of San Francisco, on the other side of the Golden Gate, uh, standing in the Muir Woods amid those uh, gigantic coastal redwoods. You can't experience the awe and majesty in a photograph of these trees. You can't capture their stature in a photograph. Um, there's nothing like standing underneath these trees uh, when you're out there, these huge, massive, ancient redwoods. It's just incredible. Mm. Uh, and I yeah. think the same with stars. When you're out under a canopy of stars and you see the Milky Way, it's just this beautiful ancient light and it's just you and the universe and the Lord. And I think uh, of the scripture in Jeremiah where God likens his chesed, his love and his mercy, his chesed is the Hebrew word, uh, to his, his, his faithfulness to us, to the, to the fixed order of the heavens. He, That's right. he likens the fixed order of the heavens to his faithfulness. And so I think as Christians, when you go out and you look at the universe and you study its regularity, um, that, that you can be reminded 
and this is indeed, I think, what God wants you to, to be reminded of, his faithfulness. Just like the stars are in their courses and the moon and the sun will rise at their appointed times, uh, God is there in his faithfulness with us, you know? Yeah, and Dan, uh, if, if someone doesn't believe God exists, then what does it all mean? Uh, it kind of makes the universe seem kind of uh, like an empty, harsh place. Yeah, yeah. But that's not the concept uh, from the Bible. No, no, not that? at all, not at all. In in the, uh, even though the universe is vast and the, these unimaginable explosions happen in it, God is in control and God cares about us on Earth. Right. Uh, to to uh, to him, it's like we're tiny little things on Earth. You, if you want to look at it that way, uh, but but that's not how he looks at it. He sees our lives as very important. Absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, I was just uh, briefly chatting with a, a skeptic on uh, uh, yesterday, um, and uh, during a live stream, I was watching a video, and he asked sort of the question of um, if. Well, he didn't ask a question. He made a kind of a silly statement. Um, if God designed the universe just for us. Then he did a bad job because um, 99.9% of the universe is uninhabitable. And I said, well, the, the, the problem with that point of view is that the universe is not created primarily for us. That's a fallacy that a lot of skeptics will, will say. It's, it's, not, yes. it's not for us. And then I, we, we got into yes. a brief discussion about, um, about what the universe is for. And uh, it's very clearly outlined in Paul's letter to the Colossians in verse 16, chapter 1. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and here it is, Wayne, and for him. For him. So it's all for for his glory. Right. And so... If we think about the universe being created for Christ, for his glory, then how do we explain, then what does it mean, to me, here's, here's the question, you know, what does it mean when we go outside of the universe, outside of Earth, is uninhabitable? We, human beings cannot exist outside of the canopy of Earth's biosphere, right? That God has created this, not as a waste place, but to be inhabited, the Earth, that is. But if you venture outside the the Earth, uh, what do you have to do? You have to uh, put on your spaceman suit, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you uh, were to go to the moon like 12 men did and uh, you decided that you were going to be a little bit bold and take off your spacesuit on the surface of the moon, oh. you wouldn't last uh, 10 hot seconds. Um, mm. you, would, uh, you would die instantly. So it's not that... Uh, so we need a suit. We need, you know, the the, univ- the astronaut suits were basically Earth environment, a portable Earth environment, um, to to save them from the the radiation and the the lack of atmospheric pressure. Um, so if we venture outside the Earth, we basically that that's a that's a kind of a, a God's holiness, right? That that no man can stand before a holy God without his spacesuit. We have to be clothed. <laughs> in the righteousness of Christ, and 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 if you live outside of Jesus, if you are not in Christ, uh, then that is death. And so the universe's deadliness, if you will, its hostility toward our creaturely life, is to me a reminder of God's holiness. And so, what does God do? He puts on a human suit, 
and comes to us and mediates for, yes. for us. And then as the bright and morning star, he dies. And that death gives us entrance into the kingdom of the heavens and brings us into Christ and we are safe in Jesus. But apart from Jesus, uh, we are outside the camp and are you know, facing pending judgment. We have to be in Christ uh, to be saved. So I think the universe attests to God's glory and his holiness, uh, his majesty, his power, his awesomeness. And, and as we've detailed here, as much as we know about the universe, especially supernova, there is a m- much we don't know. And I think that's a wonderful thing about, about what we're doing. I love to leave room for that mystery. There's just stuff we don't know. And uh, we may know some things, but we're never going to know everything about the universe conclusively or exhaustively. Um, and, and, you know, like, like we said in the beginning, right, that uh, Tycho's star, his Stella Nova, was a reminder that Aristotle, a gentle reminder that Aristotle wasn't right about the way the universe was and that the, the medieval Aristotelian scholasticism had a few things wrong about the universe. And what lesson would that be for us today, Wayne, that, that our science, as good as it is, um, is not the final say. It will change. A hundred years from now, we will have different a different perspective. So, um, but I think we will we will never know as God knows uh, about His creation. Right, and so I think it's appropriate to bring it back to God and consider when all these great things happen out in space, He is still greater, and yet He cares about us. Right, and that's Psalm eight, right? What is man? When I consider yeah. thy heavens, the moon, the moon and the stars that thou hast created, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yeah. And uh, Buzz Aldrin took that verse on a little notepad to the moon, and he uh-huh. read he read Psalm eight and in the lunar lander, the eagle, as he gave himself communion, and uh, he's got that. You can go and see the little picture of the notepad with that verse on there. And he also hmm. quoted Jesus uh, saying, I am the vine, you are the branches apart from me, you can do nothing. So uh, interesting hmm. how the, the connections there. We, we have to have our, our uh, um, the, you know, the, the most historic exploration that man has ever done. And uh, one of the explorers can't help but think about, about God. I don't know what Neil Armstrong's view of, of God was. He was a very private individual. Um, but uh, Buzz certainly was reminded of, of the glory of God when he was uh, on the lunar surface. So fantastic stuff, Wayne. Another uh, enjoyable, insightful talk where I always learn things on these broadcasts, and that's what's fun about this. We can study these things and learn new things, which I have. So thanks for the research. We'll put a link to your blog on the notes of our podcast. And uh, Yeah, I think it, it always think, does me good, Dan, to uh, kind of uh, – Consider things bigger than Earth and bigger than us, and and um, consider God, and then it makes the problems of this world seem a little smaller. Right, right. He <laughs> counts the stars and calls them all by name, as Psalm one one forty seven four says. Oh, by the way, Dan, that in that verse, uh, he he calls them all by name. Scientists never do that. We have several different star catalogs, and stars are numbered. There's a relatively small number of them that have names. 
Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Because there's too many. We, there's too we many. Can't we, name we, them. <laughs> we can't name them all. But God right. calls them all by name. He that's doesn't right. have to use the numbers. That's right. And and when I do my stargazing, that's a good point because uh, when I stargaze, I use a a um, a uh, software for my phone, and I have it on my iPad, and I have it on my computer. It's called Stellarium. It's not. Yeah. You can get the free version, but I highly recommend if you have a phone or a, a tablet to get to get the ten dollar version. Um, it's fantastic, and uh, and 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 I love to do that because I I remind myself I love to know to to remind myself of star names, mostly the brightest ones. But when you get down into the dimmer ones, you're right, Wayne. It's not they're not known by a nomenclature. They don't have a name. It's the brightest stars that we can see with a naked eye that generally have names. Yeah. Well, why? Because we see them all the time. Yeah. Um, and the dimmer the dimmer ones don't have that recognition. <laughs> so there's a a lot of numerical identity that is assigned to to stars that are out there. But yeah, you're right. Um, we don't call all the stars by name, and then even some of the stars names that that are out there are are different depending on. Uh, the language, but one of my—I'll just say this, and we'll wrap up here. One of my favorite star names is the handle, is the tip star in the handle of the Big Dipper, and it's sometimes referred to as Alcade, and it's sometimes referred to as Bennett Nash. But its real name, the the true long name of it, is Alcade Benat Al Naash, which means the chief of the daughters of the beer which means the beer like the daughters are carrying a a funeral it's a funeral procession the three stars uh in that are perceived as a funeral procession and alcade is the chief star he's the chief mourner he's the the one that's in charge of the the procession and uh it's interesting there's a connection and i don't know if that there is the connection to this or not between the star name the chief mourner alcade uh, but not Al Naash, and uh, what Job says of himself in his glory days before his suffering. Uh, one of the things that Job says that he was was a chief mourner. He comforted those who mourned, hmm. and um, and so there you have. You know, I don't know the relationship of that, but but it's certainly an ancient custom where you had a chief mourner. You had someone who was who was the chief in leading people and comforting people. And I think this ultimately, I say all this to say it points to Jesus. And it reminds me of um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that goes hmm. along the lines with blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are the poor in spirit. What do they inherit, Wayne? The heavens. And so Jesus is saying, if you're meek and poor in spirit and are mourning, you will inherit the heavens and the earth. Of course, Jesus speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. But as we look forward to our inheritance, we can look to the heavens and think that our inheritance will be like uh, the universe, will be like the cosmos, only on a much grander scale in ways we cannot even fathom, fathom, think, or imagine. So I think of the tail star of of, of the Big Dipper as, as a point as a pointer to Jesus in the way that Jesus is the chief mourner. He was a man of sorrows, but mm-hmm. what does he do? He comforts us in our sorrow because he himself was a man of sorrows and he comforts us in our sorrow and through our sorrow because he himself, like John 11, what's the smallest verse in the Bible? It's actually a fulfillment of prophecy, Wayne. Did you know that John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept? is a kind of fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says Jesus is a man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. And John 11:35 when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus about to raise him from the dead, 
Uh, he's around his his family, Lazarus's family. They're weeping, and Jesus wept too. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because you know here's God about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and you wonder well, why is he weeping? Well, because he experiences human sorrow with us, even though he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, mm-hmm. he's, he still participated in in the sorrow of Lazarus's family. Right, chief of the daughters, right? Lazarus's sister, Mary. He's chief of the daughters, the chief mourner. Uh, mm. So it's mm. it's amazing to me. I, I love, I don't know if the connection, I get to make that connection. I don't know if it's good theology or not. Uh, but but I, I, I use, that's how I do stargazing. I'm not saying that that God made that star to to be uh, to be about what I just said. But I think we can look at these things and and they can serve as reminders to us uh, about what Jesus has done for us, uh, sure, and what sure. Jesus does with us. Yeah. All right, Wayne. Uh, final thoughts. Well, I, I that's I just come back to God. It, you know, I, I think of I was thinking of some things in, from Isaiah forty. You know. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. That's good. That's just a little bit. On My article has a little more from Isaiah 40. Yeah, yeah. All right, Wayne. Well, it's been a delightful conversation. Um, a lot of tangents, but I think that's what makes uh, our podcast fun. And, you know, it's hard to believe this fall will be Good Heaven's fifth year in production. That's right. Can you, uh, I don't think when we started, we thought this was going to go for five years. <laughs> yeah, we had no idea. No uh, idea. And we, we we have a rich field from which to mine. Uh, so many things to talk about. Uh, we we have we we are never short on topics Sounds about great. Uh, yeah. about the universe and good heavens. And uh, Wayne, we will see you next time right here on Good Heavens. Good heavens. Good heavens is recorded and produced by Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. For more information about our podcast and ministry including having our staff speak at your church, visit watchman.org. That's watchman.org for more information and resources on apologetics, world religions, cults, and other non-Christian ideologies and spiritual practices. That's watchman.org.